This is KMTT, and today is Thursday. Every Thursday, Shiur in the Megillot, and now Dr. Yael Ziegler, who will be giving the Shiur in Megillatot. Welcome to our fourth Shiur in our series on Megillat Rud. I'm Yael Ziegler, and um, I, I'm today going to be giving uh, the fourth Shiur in the five Shiur series on Megillat Rud. Um, I'd like to reiterate for the benefit of those who have just recently joined or for those who have forgotten what I said in the first year that what we'll be doing this year is not so much learning the Megillah itself. This is a rather short series, perhaps too short to do that, but rather to try to examine how Megillah root, how this Megillah, this very short, uh, seemingly simple Megillah, overlaps with so many other stories in Tanakh, um, both in terms of its fundamental questions and in terms of its goals. We see that we really can't understand Megillat Root without understanding many other Tanakh stories and examining how they, um, how they affect Megillat Root, how they are in turn influenced by Megillat Root and by the uh, success of the goals of this Megillah. This is pretty much what we've been discussing until now. And on, on, aside from the actual goal of showing the the way which different stories affect Megillat Root, I also think that we can see from this the richness of the Tanakh, how in fact all 24 books really come together as a coherent whole, and how one can't really read any book independent of the others. They all come together to form a coherent message, and therefore it is, I think, very important to try to broaden our view of, in our learning of each book. Um, now, for today's class, in the past three classes, really, we've been talking about very important aspects of Megillat Root. We asked the question in the first class, why was Megillat Root written? In the second class, we asked the question, why was Megillat Root not part of Sefer Shoftim? And in the last class, I examined the connection between Sefer Breshit and particularly some of the earliest stories of the Jewish nation, those surrounding Avraham, and particularly Avraham in his relationship with his nephew, Lot, how that also um, makes its way into the story of Megillat Root and how really Megillat Root in some sense is a tikkun for that story, is a correction of Lot's mistakes in that story, leading him into a negative and sinful environment. Um, now, today I want to perhaps narrow our focus a bit in also using the same tools to examine different different features of Megillat Root. Today I really want to speak about one specific, what I would call literary phenomenon, and try to see how we can use this literary phenomenon, which appears all over Tanakh, in order to better our, our understanding of Megillat Root, in order to deepen our understanding of Megillat Root. The phenomenon which I'm speaking of today is what I would refer to as a biblical type scene. And um, what constitutes or what is what is defined by um, a certain scene which appears and reappears in several different forms in several different places in Tanakh, all of which seem to be related to each other. I'll clarify what I'm talking about with the example that we'll be using today, which is the type scene of the man who meets his wife next to a well in Tanakh. Now, Chazal note this type scene. This is certainly something that Chazal are familiar with and are aware of in several different places in the Midrash. The Midrash says, um, uh, the Midrash identifies the different places in which this type scene occurs. So for example, Shmot Rabbah, Perak Aleph, on the 
the words of Vayeshev Be'eretz Midian, Vayeshev Al Habe'er, which is describing Moshe going to Eretz Midian, where he meets the daughters of Yitro, the Midrash says, Kalat Derech Avot. He absorbed the ways of the Avot. Shloshan Nizdevgulahem, Zivugehem, Min Habe'er. Three people met their spouses, or their spouses came to them from the well. Yitzchak, Yaakov, Umoshe. Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Moshe. Chazal are very familiar with this idea that there are certain stories which seem to repeat themselves in different forms in Tanakh. This idea has been developed at great length and what I consider to be a very, uh, very successful, very interesting and important chapter in Robert Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, in chapter three, which he calls Biblical Type Scenes and the Uses of Convention, he develops this idea at great length. Now, um, I would like to ta- try to apply some of these ideas that we see in Chazal and that are further developed by Ro- Robert Alter today in our study of Megillat Root with, with an eye both towards better understanding Megillat root, and at the same time perhaps deepening our understanding of this literary phenomenon, which I consider to be of great value in our study of the Tanakh. Before I go on, I do want to mention that... um, that there are many, many other examples of this kind of literary convention or literary phenomenon in the Tanakh. I'll offer one other example, which I think will make the point very clear, and that is the story of a man who goes to a distant land and is afraid that the people of this land are going to kill him because his wife is so beautiful. And so he requests of his wife that she tell them that she lie and say, or or perhaps lie, and say that she is in fact his sister. Now, of course, this thing becomes known to the king, who has actually in fact desired his wife and taken her uh, to the palace, and the uh, king becomes very angry and sends the man out of his country, laden with presents and great riches. This story appears three different places in Sefer Bereshit. It appears in Perkir Bet, when Avram goes to Mitzrayim. That's perhaps the most well-known example, because it's the first. It appears again in chapter 20 in Per Kaf when uh, Avraham goes to Avimelech Melech Grar when he goes to Grar and then it appears a third time in chapter 26 in the story of Yitzchak and his wife going to Grar so we have here what we would what we would refer to as a biblical type scene what is it, in fact, that we do with biblical type scenes? Well, I would say that perhaps the most effective uh, way to compare these different scenes in order to emerge with the main idea in these scenes is first and foremost to isolate what seems to be the common um, element between the co- common elements between these themes. What is the type scene? What is the literary convention? What is the scene supposed to look like? Once we've isolated those factors which are meant to be in the scene, what we want to do is examine each scene for its deviations. Its deviations both in terms of its deviation from what seems to be the literary convention, what we would expect to find, and of course its deviations in the sense of what unusual elements appear in each scene, what is added to any given scene. And that's what I would really like to try to do today. And what I'd like to begin with is by defining the uh, common elements of the biblical type scene that we're going to be looking at today. And that is what I mentioned before, the biblical type scene of a man who meets his wife next to a well. What are the common elements of this type scene? What do we expect to find in each of these stories? Well, I think we could we could isolate the common elements as follows. 
A man leaves his family and journeys to a distant land. He finds a girl at a well. They are from the same family. The girl runs home to tell of the man's arrival. The man is invited to a meal, and they are betrothed. Now, this scene, in one form or another, is found in... Certainly in three stories in Tanakh, that is uh, certainly recognized by the Midrash, which I read previously, um, the Abarbanel recognizes a fourth story, and Robert Alter adds a fifth story. I'd like to first begin by stating the three obvious stories. The first one, of course, is in Breshit Per Kafdale, the story of uh, Yitzchak and Rivka, which, of course, is minus the character of Yitzchak. Yitzchak actually is not the one that goes to the well. In a moment, we'll speak about that. But that story appears in Breshit Per Kafdale. Our next story is the story of Yaakov and Rachel. And this story, of course, appears in Breshit when uh, Yaakov is running away from Esav and of course he gets to a well and there he meets Rachel. The third appearance of this story appears in the second chapter of Shemot, in Shemot Perak Bet, and it's of course the story of Moshe and Zipporah. Now the fourth instance of this story is recognized um, in a Midrash, in Pirkei Derebi Eliezer, in Perak Lamed Vav, um, and the Barbanel brings this Midrash in Shmuel Aleph Perak Tet, when he is discussing the story of Shaul's initial appearance on the scene, when and Shaul goes looking for his lost donkeys. Now, Shaul is looking for his father's donkeys, and he is with this Na'ar, and he's about ready to give up, and he says, you know, we got to get home because uh, our father, my father is now going to stop worrying about the donkeys, and he's going to start worrying about us. And the Na'ar says, no, no, don't give up. Let's go find the, the Jose. Let's go find the Navi. And they go looking for the Navi, and when they get to the Navi's town, they see that there is a group of girls that are going out to draw water, and these girls meet Shaul. Now, this whole exchange between Shaul and the girls perhaps may be compared to the other betrothal scenes that we have between a man who goes on some sort of journey and meets girls next to a well. Now, there's no actual well in that chapter. Instead, we have narot yotzot lishov mayim. We have girls who are going out to draw water. Presumably, lishov mayim means from a well, but actually, uh, the well never appears in that scene, which is why it's easy to miss it, although the Midrash in Pirkei Drebelezer does, does note it, and, uh, and the Abarbanel mentions it in the, as well in the context of these three other well scenes. Um, for our purposes, it is, it is interesting that Robert Alter adds our story as well. In Root Parakabet, again, there's no well, but we have here an exchange between Root and Boaz. Root, of course, has come to Boaz's field. She has stumbled across his field. And, um, Boaz comes to encourage Root to remain in his field, to continue to, uh, pick in his field, and also to offer her some extra favors, right? He tells her, uh, don't worry, you can pick in my field, and I've told the boys not to touch you, not to harass you. And then he tells her, if you get thirsty, vitzamit, vehalacht el hakelim vishatit measher ish avun hanearim. You can go to the vessels and you can drink from the water that was drawn by the boys. Now again, that word ish avun implies the presence of a be'er, of a well in the field. And of course we do 
do have the meeting between Ruth and Boaz next to this implied presence of a well. So we do seem to have the certainly the, the ability to add this story to our um, repertoire here, to our, our, our group of stories. And um, I am going to be speaking today about these five stories and what we can learn from the type scene, from the, the common elements between each of these, all of these five stories. I'd like to begin, of course, with the story of Yitzchak, our first story. But before I do, I want to talk for a minute about uh, about what these stories are about, why we have a need for the scene that appears in so many different places with regard to the um, the betrothal. Um, what I want to suggest is that what we're looking for here is the con- the continuation of uh, of a certain person, of his persona, of his um, of his character, and so we have this scene here in which what we're going to really try to do is to characterize the person who we are trying to continue in order to be able to highlight those aspects of the person's personality that we are trying to continue here in this story. Marriage is also about continuity, and that's what we're looking for. Now, um, the first thing that we have to note in the Yitzhak story is what we said before. It is true that, in fact, the story begins when a man uh, leaves leaves home and journeys to a distant land where he finds a girl at a well. Um, and, of course, in this case, it is not uh, Yitzhak himself, but it is Eved Avram. It's the servant of Avraham who is representing here. Uh, I guess Yitzchak, although it really the the true um, the true person that he's representing here is Avram. Now, this man, uh, indeed representing Yitzchak, uh, the, uh, leaves his home, journeys to a distant land, finds a girl at a well. In fact, Yitzchak and this girl are from the same family. The girl does indeed run home to tell of the man's arrival. He is indeed invited to a meal, and then Yitzchak and, Rif- and Rifka are betrothed. But the missing element in this story is crucial, because, of course, the fact that Yitzchak does not go and instead, the person that goes is not even Eved Yitzchak, but actually is never called by his name. I know everybody always refers to this person as Eliezer, because, of course, that's how the Midrash identifies him, and Rashi as well. Rashi uh, cites this Midrash. But that, in fact, the idea of the story is that this man is anonymous. He's not functioning independently. He's functioning as the long arm of Abraham. In fact, what Yitzchak's betrothal scene really highlights here is Yitzchak's passivity in the story. That Yitzchak, in fact, is an extremely passive personality whose um, main goal in life really is to continue Avraham. It's Avraham who is the focus of the story, not Yitzchak. It's Avraham who we're trying to continue, not Yitzchak. In fact, that point becomes clear for, by the other um, very unusual feature of this story, and that is, of course, the test of Eved Avraham. Right? Um, the, the test that he makes for God when he arrives um, in Aram Naraim, he says to God, Hashem Elokei Adoni Avraham, God, the God of my master, Avraham, Hakreina Lefanai Hayom, make some sort 
sort of uh, happening hap- happen for me here today. chesed im Adoni Avraham and do kindness with my master Avraham. hamayim. I am standing here on the spring of water. Uvnot mayim. And the daughters of the city are going out to draw water. And it will be that the girl who I will say to her, give me from your pitcher so that I can drink, and she will say, drink, and also I will give your camels to drink. She, you have proven to be the right one for your servant for Yitzchak. And then I will know that you have done chesed with my master. It's all about doing chesed for Avraham. And in fact, the very employment of this test is very much a feature of the unusual relationship between God and Avraham. If we are looking here to perpetuate Avraham, and Avraham's relationship with God is so unusual and so strong that God is allowed, that Avraham is allowed to challenge God, he is also allowed here in this story of Avraham's own continuity to in fact pose a test before God uh, to request some sort of divine intervention, some sort of miracle or direct um, intervention in order to bring about this betrothal. So this is a unique feature of the scene, which again, what I'm trying to suggest is uh, here is um, that it reflects the character of Abraham, thereby confirming what we seem to, uh, what we seem to to see here in the beginning, which is in fact that we're looking here to continue Avraham. That's why Yitzchak himself doesn't go. Now this of course is... Um a continuation of what we know about Yitzchak in general, which is that while Abraham has maybe ten chapters which describe his life, and Yaakov has at least ten chapters which describe his life, Yitzchak has exactly one chapter which describes his own uh, life, his independent workings. And in this chapter, most of the time, everything that he does is to carefully step, very gingerly to step into the footsteps of Avraham. Avraham is mentioned so many times in this chapter, and Yitzchak is very, very, very carefully following the path of Avraham. He, there's a famine in the land, so he goes, he tries to, uh, to go, to, he goes to Avimelech, Melech Plishtim, uh, just like his forefather Avraham before him. Um, and Avraham is mentioned in chapter 26, which is the chapter that tells of Yitzchak's um, life, many, many times. In fact, perhaps the most striking indication of Yitzchak's almost passivity or or um, his attempt to be a follower of Avraham is um, this one event that he seems to do independently, which is to dig the wells, right? Now here we are told that he digs the wells, Asher Chafru Bimei Avraham Aviv, he he again digs out these wells that were uh, originally dug during the days of Avraham, his father. And the plishtim had closed them up after Avraham died. And so what is, there seems to be almost something very metaphoric about Yitzchak's life. What is Yitzchak's life? Yitzchak's life is maintaining Avram's accomplishments. Now, this might sound negative today in the climate in which we want everyone to be a creator, we want everyone to be the head of a company, we want everyone to be a leader. But 
again, I mean, I think if we understand this in the context of the avot, of, of the creation of the Jewish nation in Sefer Breshit, I think that this is both very positive and absolutely crucial. We have in the beginning of the formation of the nation, we have an Avraham. An Avraham is a visionary. An Avraham is the first of, he is the one that really forges a new path. And of course, uh, Yitzchak, his son, if he were to be a visionary, we would not be able to continue the vision, the path of Avraham. In fact, what we are looking for after Avraham is someone to continue his path. We're not looking for a visionary. We're looking for a follower. We're looking for a continuer. And that, in fact, is who Yitzchak is in his life. And that is also who he is in his betrothal scene. What we're looking for in Yitzchak's betrothal scene is to continue Avraham, to continue Avraham's special relationship with God, to continue Avraham's special chesed, chesed that becomes the foundation of the Jewish nation. That's, in fact, why we're looking for a woman who is willing to do chesed, um, uh, who is willing to display a great amount of chesed in, at this betrothal scene. And so, in fact, what we have here is a betrothal scene which really characterizes the, the way in which Yitzchak is meant to function, is meant to continue Avraham in the story, and to some extent really characterizes who, what Yitzchak's role is as the second of uh, in, in the formation of our nation. Moving from here to our next story, I'd like to now examine the story of Yaakov's encounter with Rachel at the well. In this story, once again, we have the following features. A man leaves his home and journeys to a distant land. He finds a girl at a well. They are from the same family. The girl runs home to tell of the man's arrival. He is invited to a meal, and they are betrothed. Um, now, I think that there are several features here which are um, missing or which are added in this story, which are important features of the Yaakov and Rachel story. The first thing that I think that we have to point out is that Yaakov is not journeying from his family to a distant land at any sort of leisurely pace. His goal is not primarily to find a wife, although that is certainly seems to be one of the reasons, uh, or at least the pretenses, that his parents give him for going. But the real reason that he's going, which we know from the previous story, is because he's running for his life. He's running away from Esav. He is not walking at a leisurely pace to uh, to... Padena Aram or to Haran in order to find a wife, he is running away from Esav who is intent upon killing him. Um, at the same time, when he gets there, he finds this great stone on the well. And this stone features very prominently in the story. We're told that the, this huge stone on the well meant that all of the different shepherds had to gather together at the same time in order to heave this great stone off of the well in order so that they can um, give their flocks water. And this becomes a very important feature of the betrothal scene. Um, thirdly, what's different in the scene is that Yaakov is not invited for a meal. Um, the fourth different feature in the scene is that, of course, he meets this girl by the well, but he doesn't get to marry her, certainly not right away. He is tricked and he is given Leah, her sister, instead, despite the fact that as soon as he meets her by the well, he immediately, um, immediately loves her and, um, 
and wants to work for seven years in order to marry her. Now, at the end, of course, he does marry her, but she's not the first. He has to go through several different uh, stages before he actually gets to marry the, the girl that he meets next to the well. So we have here all these different features, all of which I think come together to uh, characterize Yaakov as the struggler, right? Nothing comes easy to Yaakov. Yaakov doesn't get to walk at a leisurely pace. Nobody's given Yaakov a free meal. Everyone, everything that he does, he has to struggle for. He has to struggle at the very beginning of his existence, just in the womb, he's already struggling. He struggles to come out of the womb. Remember that he is, um, uh, that when he comes out, um, his hand is clutching onto his brother's heel. That also indicates a struggle. He struggles with his brother later on. He's going to struggle to get his wives. He's going to struggle with his children. And perhaps the greatest symbolic um, moment in this betrothal scene, which suggests his struggle, is this stone that's on top of the well. Yaakov doesn't even have easy access to the most basic necessity of life. And that is, of course, water. Uh, Yaakov, in fact, has to come close to this be'er, and in a feat of superhuman strength, he himself heaves that stone off of the well, and that, of course, is an indication of what it is that we're supposed to learn from Yaakov. Yaakov is not just the struggler. He is the struggler who prevails, and that, of course, is indicated later in the story when God changes his name and says, no longer going to call your name Yaakov, but Yisrael, for you have struggled with men and with divine beings, and you have prevailed, and you have overcome. And so we really see the element of Yaakov's struggle, and Yaakov, of course, becomes the paradigm of um, what it is of, of the almost of the Galut Jew of what it is to struggle and to prevail. We learn that from Yaakov. We draw strength from Yaakov's struggle and his ability to prevail, and that also is highlighted in his betrothal scene. Moving on to the Moshe um, uh, well scene, I want to mention three features which I think here uh, uh, deviate from our usual betrothal scene. There, there are several more in the scene, but I really want to focus on three distinct features. The first one is, of course, that um, when when Moshe comes to the well, he also is running away. He certainly is not um, is is not looking for a wife. But the first one that I want to mention is that when he comes to the well, he he finds this scene of injustice where the shepherds are um, sending away the daughters of um, of Kohen Midian or perhaps their sheep and we're told so that even in his betrothal scene Moshe becomes the paradigm of justice. That's what he does at the moment that we are focused on his continuity, that we're looking to see who is this man that we are looking uh, to continue him, we see this feature which really characterizes Moshe and that is his justice. The second thing that I want to note about his betrothal scene is that he meets these daughters of Midian. He doesn't meet a woman. He meets seven women and um, Sheva Banot and none of them have a name. The only thing that we really know about them is that they are the daughters of the Kohen Midian who we eventually know is going to be Yitro. What we see here is that uh, is that really um, uh, Moshe doesn't marry Tzipora the person. He marries Tzipora the daughter of Yitro. Um, And this I think also 
uh, connects to what we mentioned before, which is Moshe's um, character as the arbiter of justice, as the one who is um, who is who, who is always saving other people, who is willing to fight injustice, even um, at the moment of his betrothal scene, even when he's in the throes of a deep crisis um, that that has led him to run away from Egypt. He's still intent upon fighting injustice, but at the same time, what he is looking for in the scene is not to marry. Marry um, one of these women, but rather to marry into the family of Yitro. Why? Because Yitro, as we are going to see later on, he is the one who sets up our judicial system. He is the one who can enable Moshe to implement his deep, um, intuitive sense of justice. And this partnership between Moshe and Yitro is described in, in many different midrashim. There's a wonderful midrash that um, that I always like to quote. It's a midrash which uh, tells us that um, there was a stick that was deeply planted in Yitro's garden, and no person could move this stick. No person can pluck this could pluck this stick out of the ground. It certainly sounds like uh, certain mythologies which we're familiar with, except for Moshe, and that's the reason that Yitro gave him his daughter Tipora for a wife. The Abarbanel explains this midrash, and he says this stick that was planted in the garden. This is um, the the wisdom of Moshe, the justice of Moshe. It was planted deeply in the garden of Yitro, and nobody could release the power of Yitro's wisdom until Yitro and Moshe came together in order to become father-in-law and son-in-law, which is really the story that we see later on in Shemot Perak Yudchet. In Shemot Perak Yudchet, what we see is, is Yitro setting up the justice system so that it, it works, so that it enables Moshe to really teach Am Yisrael how to implement a system of mishpat, a system of divine justice. And so what appears to me to be an important feature of Moshe's betrothal scene is that the continuity of Moshe is centered not on the girl that he's going to marry, but on the father-in-law, the family that he's going to marry into, which is why when we when he meets a girl next to a well, he doesn't actually meet one girl, he meets seven girls, and they're not exactly identified by name, but rather they are identified by their relationship to their father. So perhaps we could say that Moshe is not looking for a woman, he's looking for a father-in-law. And that's, in fact, what he finds at the well. The third interesting feature of Moshe at the well is that Tipor is not from the same family as him. And again, perhaps this indicates Moshe's struggle at this time, and perhaps also his struggle as a leader later on. Is he inside the people? Does he stand outside, above the people? What works better? There's a very interesting Ibn Ezra in Perak Bet, which explains why Moshe had to grow up outside the palace, why it's important for him to maintain his identity as an outsider in Am Yisrael. And perhaps this feature in his betrothal scene is also part of that theme as well. I see that I'm running out of time here, so I'm going to try to speed up so that we could get to Migilat Rud. Um, I, I just want to mention briefly this fourth betrothal scene, um, which is the one that we mentioned previously with respect to Shaul, um, is, is really very interesting. I mean, here Shaul is, he's looking for his donkeys, and he, uh, he, he goes to find the Navi, so that the Navi can tell him where his donkeys are, and he finds instead these young girls who are going out to draw water. And he says to them, Have you seen the Navi? And they answer him this really very funny, very vibrant, very, um, uh, very interesting pasuk because of its vibrancy, because of its 
character, uh, they, they give him this very, very lengthy response. I'm going to read it for you. Listen to what they say. They answer him, they say, I don't think I even need to translate that pasuk in order for you to get the sense um, uh, that I'm trying to convey here of their words. They are very excited. They are um, simply bubbling over with enthusiasm. The Barbanel says that they're actually talking all at once, which I think you can really hear here in these psukim, that they're sort of tripping over each other in order to talk. And in fact, the Gemara notes the lengthy uh, response of the girls and asks, why are they talking so much? And the first response of the Gemara is that women are great talkers. Perhaps we'll leave that answer aside and we'll get to the second answer of the Gemara. The Gemara goes on and says, um, Shayu מיסתכלות שיום מביתות ביופיו של שאול ולא היו סבאות ממנו that they were looking at the beauty of Shaul and they simply couldn't get enough in other words they were trying to delay him they were keeping him there he was trying to go somewhere and they were keeping him there they were interested in him here was this um, this this man Shaul who was מישיחמובה מלה גבוה מכל העם he had a certain stature he had a certain height he was very impressive externally and they in fact were trying to engage him in conversation. Perhaps what's most interesting about this seeming betrothal scene is that Shaul doesn't respond to them. In fact, in the next passage, we're told, he simply turns away from them. He is absolutely oblivious or perhaps uninterested in their excitement here. And this, I would, I would venture to say, is very, very important in characterizing Shaul. In fact, in our very first impression of Shaul, what we see, and I'm, I'm pointing out something that was uh, pointed out in a very interesting article in Migadim, which is the um, the journal that is put out by Michalat Herzog, which is connected to Yeshivat Haaretzion. In um, one of the early journals of Migadim, uh, a woman named Ruth Paz wrote an article about Shaul in which she said, it's very interesting that Shaul seems to be missing three important things in our initial encounter with him. One is um, donkeys. doesn't have any donkeys, and he can't seem to find them. I would add that he doesn't seem particularly interested in finding them. He's certainly willing to give up on the donkeys at a very early stage in the game. Now, his Na'ar, who is with him as, as perhaps a foil to Shaul, is not willing to give up on the donkeys. And the Na'ar says, let's go find a, a, a Navi that we can, you know, we can ask him where the donkeys are. And Shaul says, oh, no, no, I have no money. And the Nara says, oh, don't worry, I have money. So what else doesn't Shaul have? He doesn't have donkeys. He doesn't have money. And the third thing that he doesn't have is that he doesn't have women. Now, I want to suggest something that Ruth Paz does not suggest, which is that, in fact, these three things indicate that Shaul is not meant to be a great king. He's not going to be a great leader. In fact, a great leader is someone who does have ambition, who is interested in obtaining um, things for himself. And in fact, one of the ways in which we can see that is if we look back in Devarim Yudzayan, which tells us the limitations of the king's power. What are the three things that we're told that the king must limit in order that he not become a tyrant? Velo yarbelo nashim, velo yarbelo susim, velo yarbelo kesef vizahav. He should not increase his wealth, his money, not his animals, his horses specifically, 
and not have too many women. The fact that Shaul is initially featured as a man who's not interested and doesn't possess any of these three things and is completely oblivious, perhaps, to the, even the suggestion that he should pursue uh, any of these three things, in fact, indicates that this is a very uh, delightful character, undoubtedly, but one that is not suited for kingship. He simply doesn't have the interest. He simply doesn't have the ambition. And the the betrothal scene perhaps is designed to highlight that. So I think that we're, we're, what we're beginning to see here already is that by uh, examining this literary convention, we really begin to perhaps um, uh, plumb the depths of the characters that are involved in these biblical type scenes. We begin to really see certain features of these characters um, as they're highlighted by comparing the different type scenes. And now I want to arrive at our type scene, and that is, of course, Migilat Root. Here in Perak Bet of Migilat Root, we do have, in fact, uh, what seems to be the literary convention of a betrothal scene. Let's go back over those initial features that we spoke about at the beginning of this shiur. A man leaves his home and journeys to a distant land. He finds a girl at a well. They are from the same family. The girl runs home to tell of the man's arrival. He is invited to a meal and they are betrothed. All of these features seem to be present, except it is inverted. It is not the man, it is the woman. The woman leaves her family and journeys to a distant land. She finds a man at a well. They are from the same family. Of course, the whole story is only significant because Boaz is a relation of Naomi. The girl, the, the, the man runs home to tell of the girl's arrival. That perhaps is a missing feature here. Um, she is invited to a meal and they're betrothed. I think if there's one thing that this inversion suggests to us about Megillat Root, it is that in fact what we're looking for here in terms of continuity, the character who we are looking to continue their personality traits in order to get to the next stage, which is of course kingship, is not specific Boaz, but specifically Root. Now, I'm not suggesting that Boaz isn't, uh, doesn't um, have many of the features that are necessary for setting up Mahut. We did speak about that in our first shiur. Boaz is, in many ways, a mirror image of Root. He is kind like Root. He is willing to do kindness also with the dead like Root. Therefore, he has uh, the ability to do altruistic kindness. He's also a hard worker. He's also a man of commitment. He's also a man who keeps, uh, who's very um, uh, set on, on his, who's very involved in his religious commitments, in his Shemirat Mitzvot. In many ways, Boaz is a mirror image of Root, but we do not call this Megillat, Megillat Boaz. And we never refer to Boaz as Abba Shel Machut. And instead, of course, we continuously refer to Root as Ima Shel Machut. It is her her personality. It is her characteristics it, uh, that we are looking for when we're looking to set up the Machut. And therefore, when we have this um, betrothal scene, this biblical type scene of a betrothal scene, in which we are looking to continue someone's personality, we focus on Root. And only if you have the uh, sensitivity here of comparing the different type scenes and understanding the different literary conventions here, can you really see the manner in which um, the, the, the Megillah is trying to highlight Root and her personality in order to bring us to Mahut? Um, and that is, of course, why, we're, why this is called Megillah Root and why Root is the Imashah Mahut. Thank you.